Hello, and welcome to Elixir Talk. Elixir Talk. I am your serious host, Desmond Bowie, and I'm joined by my serious co-host, Chris Bell. Hi, Desmond. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are you? I'm serious. Why are you so serious? <laughs> I'm serious because, for once, I am looking you in the face. It's so weird. This is so weird. Um, so this is an Alexa talk first. Yes. We're recording together for the first time. <laughs> so we started this podcast about two years ago, uh, right when I moved to L.A., and since then, we recorded how many episodes? 50-something? 50 55. 55. With a couple of bad ones that didn't work out. So maybe like 60? Between 50 and 60 <laughs> episodes of this podcast we've recorded, all of them have been remote. I've been in L.A., Chris has been in New York. We record both of our audio tracks locally while we have a uh, Google Hangout open so we can see each other. Um, and then we upload the audio, and uh, I stitch it together, and then we have the podcast, so it sounds like we're talking to each other. But today, we are both sitting in Chris's office looking at each other, and it's pretty weird. Yeah, it's kind of freaking me out. I might be off my game, so uh, sorry to the listeners. I know, I thought this was going to be like some awesome podcast <laughs> where it flows much more easily, but it's kind of weird. Yeah, well... Here we are. So we're in New York. So we're in New York. Specifically, I'm in New York. That's yeah. an unusual point. I'm normally in New York. That's a good point. So um, I'm in New York uh, because I have some news. Uh, I've started a new job. I've taken a full-time position with a company called Pay It Off, which is based out of New York. Um, and we help people pay off student loans. That's very cool. It is. Uh, it turns out that a ton of people have student loans. And it's a huge problem. And it's not that the loans themselves are problems because people, you know, they need an education and they don't have money for it. How else are they going to pay for it? The problem that we're facing specifically is that uh, it's difficult to pay them back and that people are not empowered with um, options that are available to them. Different options for structuring the repayments based on their various income levels uh, or finding different options for uh, forgiving part of their loan. Like if you're a government employee, you can get part of your loan forgiven. If you're a public school teacher, you can get part of your loan forgiven. And these programs are out there, but people just don't know about them because uh, the people, the loan servicers, who are hired by the government to help you pay back your loan are incentivized to keep you in debt. It's one of these messed up situations where people, uh, you know, they're paid based on how many uh, borrowers they have, so they don't really care if you get out of debt. And... You know, no one's on the borrower side. So we don't refinance loans. We don't do anything like that. We just say, okay, well, given your history, your employment history, how much money you make, how much money you expect to make, this is your best option. And you could save tens of thousands of dollars over the life of your loan. That's cool. So I'm guessing this is an Elixir shop? It is. It is an Elixir shop. That's good. That's good. And what's your role? Just I'm the CTO. Ah, nice. It's going to make some, I don't know. Chief dog joke, but I don't know. So that's a very good role. I'm pretty excited. I mean, it was kind of the um, role I wanted um, coming into a small company. Uh, I mean, I'm the first employee, um, although I did start at the same time as uh, our first engineering hire, a guy uh, by the name of Brian Paxton, who some of you may have heard of. He's been very active on the uh, Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, building out the website. 
He's contributed a bunch to um, open source tools, including Rebar, and he's just been around for a while. So awesome guy. We both started today. So in this loan business, does and, and like you said, it's an Elixir code base. So do you have to integrate with a ton of really crappy systems that handle this data? No. Ah. No. Um, the main thing is there is a national student loan database, which is a government-run system, and that is the source of truth for uh, people's student loan data, like what plan you're on, for example, if you had a loan. And that's not too bad. It's fine. Um, the tricky part is figuring out what people are eligible for, like including these business rules around how do loans work? How are people eligible for repaying them? That's just all like government programs, different rules and laws that are passed in various times uh, throughout history. And um, yeah, subject to the whims of political political seasons. So over time, these rules just accumulate cruft and they're not really thought through. And here's this exception and that exception and this other thing. And uh, yeah, eventually it just becomes very difficult to disentangle and most people understandably don't want to deal with it. It's the same reason why you hire an accountant to do your taxes. It's because it's complicated. Uh, student loans are complicated in the same way. So our job is to manage all of that for you. So how does Elixir help the company? Well, basically the whole thing is how do we manage complexity? Mm. That is the beginning and end of it. Um, I was just saying to Chris before the show that we have, I think, seven database tables, um, six or seven database tables. And one or two of those are just static data, like a list of eligible employers, uh, you know, like nonprofit companies. So the complexity is, yeah, is are you eligible for this given this and that? You know, how do these calculations work? And so the, the magic sauce with Elixir is how can we manage that complexity? What tools do we have? And it turns out tools like pattern matching, case statements, um, and structs are really helpful for this. The problem is we don't have a lot of that in the code base. So, um, yeah, I got a bit of work to do to kind of freshen this up. Um, and it's been interesting because code base is about two years old. It was written by uh, a friend of mine who I will not throw under the bus here. Um, and it gets the job done, but there's a lot of if statements. There's a lot of long functions and... It's um, challenging, frankly, to figure out what is going on. And particularly, particularly if you have, uh, you know, let's say you have a function that's like generate report. I think we all have functions like this in our code base, the do the thing function. Um, when you're at that level of abstraction, you're thinking, okay, I want to generate a report. Okay, I'm probably going to want to fetch data, massage the data a bit. If data is valid, do this else do that and then compile the output mm -hmm. pretty straightforward and then in each of those constituent functions you can see oh what does it mean to have something be valid what does it mean to generate a report how should it be formatted and all that sort of thing but you you manage the those layers of abstraction further down when you're thinking about generate the report you're just looking at top level business rules um, here we have 200 line functions and a lot of the overall logic is mixed in with um much lower level logic about multiplying an APR by a gross income. Mm. And so it's very difficult to think, to deal with the app at, at different layers of abstraction. I think it's going to be crucial to nail that for the app to grow. Yeah. I mean, is this a classic case of a system that was built 
um, like the company's pivoted a bit and then, you know, this thing has evolved and is complex in its own way and rightly so, right? But it mm-hmm. solves the problem right now. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like now might be a good time to start introducing some of those patterns, especially if you've established some kind of market presence and the company now exists and is clearly, hopefully, doing okay it's if doing you were well hired. Yeah, it's doing well enough to hire me. And um, you're right. Like, the company is getting traction. We have a couple of clients and um, talking to a couple more. So that's going well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the code base, it was what it was to get us to where we are which is fine. I mean, if I had had to do this today, uh, I would have written it differently just because I've been doing Elixir for four or five years. Right. But then, you know, I was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the hire an Elixir developer jobs board I'm working on. And I admitted that like, okay, when I'm just trying to get this out the door, my code is not great. Mm -hmm. Uh, I sort of don't organize it as well as I might otherwise. And it's like, just get it to work. That's fine. Um, now, there's not a lot of business logic in a jobs board. Right. So right. it's a little different. But I kind of reflexively reach for, oh, I want a pattern match in these function heads. Oh, having a struct here would be really nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this app, we return like five or six element tuples. And for those listening at home, you should rarely have a tuple that's more than three elements. I think that's a fair rule. Yeah. And I've seen people return tuples. So you have a, a tuple that's okay, comma, bag of data. Or uh, the alternative will be a tuple, a one-element tuple of the atom error. Mm -hmm. You never need to do that. (laughs) Just return the atom error, and that's fine. A tuple is for when you want to return, like, a couple of things in your result. I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen that. That's... uh, I've seen it. I... I mean, I get it because if you're following the convention of like, oh, you always return like a tag tuple with okay and error, but then why wouldn't you just return a string or some kind of error identifier after the error, you know, the actual error that happened? Yeah. The point is like you want to know two things with this result. The first thing is, did it work? And the second thing is, what's the thing? Yeah. Right. And uh, if you don't have the thing, just don't return a tuple in the first place. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. It's kind of weird how you can actually create a one element tuple in the first place, though. Right. Mm. That would be an interesting warning. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they were just like, we don't need this because no one will do it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, here you are. Here we are. So, uh, what, like, let's, let's talk a bit about, like, why this kind of thing happens, right? Like, not from an abstract perspective of, like, Obviously, this is a system that's been created over time, but more from a like, what kind of like, where do you come from to start thinking about code in this way? You know, like, because um, clearly there's some like misunderstanding of some of the benefits of Elixir here, right? Like you're talking about there isn't that much pattern matching. There's an over-reliance on if statements, things like that in the code base, right? Well, it sounds like uh, any procedural or object-oriented code base that we've probably worked on. Right. Um, I mean, if you come from basically any other kind of background, you write if statements. Like, that's how you manage control flow. Mm. Um, That's the only way around it. And I think uh, a lot of us who have done that for a long time have run into the hairy if statement where you're four levels deep in this nested conditional. You don't remember what conditions were to get you there, and it's really difficult to test um, because it's hard to set up everything just right. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Yeah, it's a pain. The code's hard to read. It's hard to understand, and it's hard to uh, reason about. Do you th- do you think some of this is like like I, someone? I have a couple of rules that I like to follow when I think about Elixir code. One of which is like functions are all about the transformation of data. Right, data comes in, do some operations on it, data goes out, and like. I, I actually think like following a rule like that makes you lean on functions a bit more to do that transformation and have those different steps of transformations as well. The other one I was going to say is like someone once told me a long time ago, like put everything in a function head and it's kind of the same rule, I guess, in a lot of ways. But like I think that if you start thinking about things more as discrete functions that perform units of work mm-hmm. and transformations on data then you can start to like actually um, reduce the complexity, right? And you start like, you you end up like, I, I remember, I think we've talked about this before, where you end up like never writing an if statement. And I think like, I remember on like a very large Elixir code base I was on, we looked at like the number of if statements and there was like two and they were both like inline ifs for like just basically like aesthetic reasons yeah. more than anything else. Yeah, so. I'm cool with an inline if. But that's about it. I mean, I I pipe case statements to true and false. Yeah, me too. All the time. I'm like, I, I love doing that. Absolutely yeah. love. And I, I know some people are like, why are you doing it? But it's like... It's just easier to read because if yeah. everything else is case, then your brain is just in this mode of like, all right, control flow. Like case statement, okay, I'm going to branch somewhere and these are the possible outcomes. Definitely. I think like... For me, I think we have some amazing structures for control flow in, in Elixir. I think case being one. But then I also, I just think the with statement is so powerful for, for encapsulating like this series of do this, do this, do this. If one thing's happened, short circuit out of it. Mm-hmm. But then like, then you can start like really crafting this complex control flow when you start thinking like, it's a with that calls another function that might have a with in it as well. But you don't see it as the bigger, like, you, you don't try and, like, internalize all of the possible, like, execution paths of that of that with at once. You actually start thinking about it as discrete blocks. Yeah, I think that's the goal, uh, which touches back on what I said earlier about, like, layers of abstraction. Like, your function with the with should be dealing with things at a high enough level, and then the constituent parts of the with, you sort of break down and think, okay... You know, here we are in this situation. I have been in uh, situations where you're trying to reason through what can come out of this with, Mm. and you end up chasing, okay, well, here's the happy path, but like, what else can happen? And then, okay, well, maybe this thing, as you say, calls another with, and there's another case statement, um, because it's not obvious what falls out of a with. So one, one thing that I've seen to really help with that recently is, and I've been using this actually a lot, um, so... With widths, when it short circuits and it goes to the, you can either like handle the else, um, and you can explicitly match on what the, what the line that failed to match on, um, returns, or you can actually just, um, like you can just let that error just like propagate up, right? And it will just return it out of the width. But one thing that's really nice is if you're dealing with like lots and lots of different values being returned from a width, then Let's say one of them will return a user, but it might return nil. Mm -hmm. What I do now is do a tag tuple on the with call itself. So let's say I'll say like tuple uh, atom user and then the function to like fetch that user. And then when I'm pattern matching against what will be returned from there, the line will either say uh, it'd be a tag tuple that says user with an actual user struct 
or it might be user with a nil. So in that way, I can actually like pattern match mm. on these values when when they're in the else clause. I see. So that's kind of like um, with Ecto Multi, where you like name the result. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So like you're basically naming each line of the width so that you can more easily get at the errors that are coming out from it. Yeah. Okay. So like in that way, like you can actually start to like it makes it a bit less obtuse, like what's being uh, returned from there. Um, from the with control flow itself, like from each statement. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's interesting because I mean, yeah, like I, I've been, I've committed uh, blunders where I've written deeply nested with statements, and then you know, three layers deep, you forget what you're returning, and then yeah, yeah, you return nil instead of error message or something. Yeah, and. Um, it blows up and you don't know why. Unless I, you're good with your type specs. Right, right, right. So I was just about to make that point as well, which is like, if you are dealing with those, like you have a with that then is calling other functions that are also dealing with widths, I, I often just make those public functions and then I'll write unit tests of those things on their own, right? And then add type specs to it as well. Mm-hmm. So you can at least get some more more granular test coverage on those small unit uh, units. So what do you think about this idea? What if... Uh, every function that you had in a with statement must be a public function. I don't always agree with that. Okay. Because I think there's some cases where I like to just move it into a private function um, and it's purely a function just so I can pattern match on a function head and deal with the return result a bit more easily, you know, and encapsulate the cases in the function head effectively. I mean, if it's something like fetch user, mm-hmm. you know, nice private function, sure. But I'm thinking uh, in your example of writing type specs, having everything be public, I, I wonder if it's an interesting rule of thumb to just say, okay, well, we're just going to make everything be public so that we really force ourselves to obey this contract. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Maybe. I could see it being useful. I, I could see it being useful when you're dealing with the kind of logic that you're talking about, which is like, very complex control flow and very complex kind of like do this if all of these things are true otherwise Mm -hmm. i need to go through and do this other thing and there's a lot of business logic rules in there so i can see the value of basically making each one of those public and then unit testing them definitely Mm -hmm. but i mean i don't like hard and fast rules (laughs) i don't know i know it's like one of those things that you need like if you're on a code base like that having those rules might help actually longer term but yeah, I've been um, slowly putting together like a set of engineering philosophy rules as we tighten up the code base, and I keep it pretty thin. I mean, don't use if statements is one, add type specs is another, uh, don't use single element tuples is a third. <laughs> uh, but in general, it's like, I don't know, I may, maybe I'm just falling back on, I've been doing this for a while, and so I just have my own kind of heuristics. Mm what makes sense and i don't feel like i need i mean i know i i've internalized certain rules and practices and i also know when to break them or i'm aware of like oh i'm violating my right but but you're if you're talking about newer people to elixir it might be really beneficial to have a concrete set of rules Mm -hmm. that you follow well isn't there an elixir style guide yeah, so talks about this stuff. Yeah, I I use Credo actually to deal with some of this, uh-huh. you know, which is like a reasonable set of conventions, and there's a lot of configuration you can do in there. But Credo is not going to say don't use an if statement. You can set it up so it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. There's like a ton of different rules you can enable in Credo. Um, 
pretty sure I'm pretty sure you can do an if statement one. I might have just been lying. Should probably look that up. Um, but I mean, like I definitely have one which is like all modules require module docs. Sure. And all public functions must have docs. And I wouldn't that, consider that like a coding convention. Though. You wouldn't. No. I so I wholeheartedly feel like that's a coding convention. I mean, I think it's a good idea. Hmm. But I wouldn't call it like, how do I organize my Elixir code? It's like, yeah, I had a module doc. That's just like good hygiene. Mm-hmm. It's like, write a test. Like, yeah, okay. Good idea. Right. But like enforcing that is another issue, right? So having something like Credo where it's a linter to do it actually helps. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought we were talking about Credo as a like, how do we structure our code? Oh, no, no, no. It won't help too much with that. It does do some readability checks for you. Mm-hmm. And it will help with, it will give you warnings if you want or some of them. or something. Yeah, reuse, yeah. exactly. Um, there's a lot of checks in there. And if you're not using Credo, it's definitely worth having a look at the project at least. I think I will always make this caveat. If you are putting in linters or formatters or anything like that, do it as a team. <laughs> Get the buy-in of your team. And don't just enable every rule from the get-go. No. Like, think about it as a group. Like, this is one of those things where you could have, like, a mini retro and talk about what works and then every week add a new rule or something like that, you know? Because not every rule adds value. No, exactly. And there's a ton of stuff where you're just, like, following dogma, like, like for no reason, you know, other than the fact that, like, someone somewhere said that that was a rule that you should follow. But, like... Yeah, or it's just, like, some default setting that was never disabled. It's, like, it's just... Yeah. It's just a setting. Yeah. It's not... It's not I, I Honestly, I... I, right now, I am a, an engineer of one, like, working on a project. So, I'm also the worst person to talk to about this. But I think that um, from what I've seen in the past, like, just having good conventions as a team and setting those things up. And, like, yes, you might want to augment it with a set of rules. But, I, like, if you can automat- automatically enforce those things via linters and style guides and things like that, it's so much easier, you know? Yeah, then you don't end up having, like, human nitpicks in every PR, which I think is just so demoralizing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reasoning behind the format, right? Right, it's absolutely. Just like, just, like, one and done, it's, like, it's good then. Yeah, so we've been using um, uh, an app called Clubhouse for our uh, story tracking, which I've used for a couple of years now, and um, I'm pretty happy with it. One of the killer features for me is they um, come up, they have Git helpers. So they just like come up with a name for your branch, which is, you know, username slash story number slash story title that's been dasherized or something. And they have a shortcut, a button that you click and it copies to your clipboard the whole command for creating the branch. So git checkout dash b and then the branch name. Mm-hmm. And you use this branch name. And it links with GitHub, and so it uh, wraps or tracks the story back. It tracks the branch back into your story. So from the story, you can link out to the branch or a specific commit, and it's this nice integration. But I love that I no longer have to think about branch names. Yeah. I click the button, and I'm good to go. How many times have you made branches like Desmond-Fixes or something? Yeah. Like, I do my initials and then whatever. Like Yeah. But I actually did one on the plane, and I was like... Uh, I was working on a bunch of things. I was like, CB dash plane fixes. I'm like, this is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as I said, team of one. Uh Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Again, like 
we were having this discussion today during onboarding about processes and like what's our workflow. And the subject came up of if you have a team of two people or a team of one person, like that process doesn't have to scale to a team of 10 people. No, absolutely. You're going to revisit it naturally. Yeah. And you don't want to labor as a team of two under a process that is appropriate for a team of 10. Absolutely. It's a ton of ceremony and a lot of of waste of time. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're saying is it depends. (laughs) depends. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I definitely think that like having some rules for newer, newer Elixir engineers is really good as well. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've seen that be really, really helpful in the past where we're onboarding people into a project or into a language for the first time. And at least like having a set of conventions that they can follow and good practices, I think is very, very helpful. And it's easy to forget once you've been doing something for a while and internalized it, like people reach for rules, you know, yeah. they need to know where the boundaries are, what the guidelines are. Yeah. Or they like look around the project and copy like other bits. So like, this I mean, is where I still do that. Right. Me too. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, they wrote it like this someplace. And then like sometimes you just yank a function out or mm-hmm. something, right? And then you're like changing bits of the implementation. But um, yeah. I think it's just one of those things where like, yeah, people will naturally follow the conventions and the code base unless they're kind of assholes where they're like, I'm <laughs> going to do it my way. <laughs> but yeah, it's nice when you end up in the code base where it's like, you can tell it's been written by a team, but you don't know who on the team has written it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the format kind of helps with that as well. Uh, yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, there's still room for personal expression and creativity, mm-hmm. I'll say. Um, but, I mean, particularly an app like mine, which is so heavily context-driven, and one of the challenges, how do you onboard people into this domain? It's like, this is not the time to get clever. Yeah. Because the last thing you need to do when you're trying to understand complex rules is like, what is this fancy bit of code they're doing here? Yeah. I think that's where like very well-named return data structures really helps as well, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I don't know. What's your, what's it, what are your thoughts on maps versus structs, first of all? When do you reach for a struct? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't have hard and fast rules. Um, I've been reaching for it now. Because it helps me, it helps me understand types. It helps me sort of like use types when Elixir doesn't have types. And I'm not going to wade into the do I think Elixir should have types um, discussion right now. But uh, at times when I think about, okay, well, here are a bunch of similar functions that are returning the same shape of a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really uh, an eligibility report. You know, I return it as a map, but it's really like, a certain shape of something that I want to call out and name as such. And so that to me is a struct. Right. So it's like something that has a recognizable shape that you're using in a few places. Yeah. I mean, a map is like something whose shape can change. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if it's a map of two elements or whatever, like you don't have to get too fine grained because then that's where types can get onerous. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I, I love like pattern matching on structs and function heads as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, like the other good thing about structs is you get to implement protocols against them. Yeah, and that becomes very useful. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So talk talk to us a little bit about when you deploy protocols for this sort of thing. <laughs> uh, when I use protocols. Like at, at what point do you say, I need to enforce this with a protocol as opposed to like, well, yeah, I mean, these things have a similar interface that return the same shape of well, for me- data. Oh, you, uh, so you thinking about behaviors versus protocols? 
I think so. Behavior is when you're saying that this set of structs always implements these same um, functions. Uh, no, I'm thinking of protocols where like these functions must return this type. So a protocol is your polymorphism. Right. Right? So if I have a set of eligibility rules and you can be eligible for different types of uh, loan forgiveness, uh, each of those, yeah. I, I'm saying types of loan forgiveness, each of those different varieties of loan forgiveness, when I check for each of those varieties, they should return to me um, uh, say loan eligibility struct and I want to enforce that. Yeah. So in that case of a protocol where you're saying I have a few different types that all implement the same protocol that say, um, they, that, which basically means that they all implement the same function that can, it can have a varying return result, by the way. Like that's okay. You can do that. Right. Um, I thought by they implementing all... a protocol, you're in, you're, Enforcing the expectation of a return value. You can, but you can also say, can't you say it like returns? I don't think you have to, like, I don't think you have to enforce the return value. I'm just going to, uh. I mean, I think you could give it, you could say, like, well, this is going to return either this or that. Right. I'm, uh, just real time Googling. Um. Yeah, because you effectively dispatch on a protocol, yeah, but you don't have to, re you don't have to declare what the return value is there, which is why it can be useful, right? You might say like an eligible, like you might have like report A and report B and they both have the protocol of reporting, which is your protocol you're implementing on it. And you expect them to both return, um, a map or something. Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes sense. But like in other cases, you might want to say that. It might return, um, I don't know, various different disparate types, right? Might, one might return a string for some reason versus something else. But then what's the, what's the benefit there? Because you're basically saying that all of these things implement this specific function that you want to use, right? Okay. So that, that's really it. That's like all you get with the protocol. You're basically saying that I, my struct implements this function and I, therefore, when that protocol gets called, um, I know that it either implements it or it doesn't. And therefore, if it implements it, it's going to call into whatever that implementation of the protocol is. That's mm. it. Yeah. I think that's less useful. Yeah. Because, I mean, ideally, I'm writing tests and I, I understand my system well enough to know that, okay, yeah, this main function is being implemented. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I were doing like an API wrapper or something, sure. But if I want to enforce that, yeah, all of these, I'll again, use the example of eligibility checks. I want to make sure that I'm returning something of the same shape. I wonder if you type spec to protocol, what would happen? Uh, like a, yeah, the protocol definition. Didn't we do that? Haven't we? I think I learned my protocols from something uh, you did on a project we worked on a while back. Yeah. Where you describe a protocol and then you type spec it and then you say, outside of that API, like, you define the functions and then they delegate to the implementation. No, that's the interface. Yeah. That's a behavior thing. Mm. Um, oh, right, right, right. I know what you're talking about. So that is where we say that you have, um, a live API wrapper and your like mock one, right? Mm. And you're basically saying that they both implement this set of functions. That's a behavior. And that's not a protocol. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, I'm trying to like think about why you use behaviors a bit more. Um, basically, the behavior says that all of these modules, like plug is a really good example, right? Plug.com. Plug.com is a behavior. Um, is that right? Or is it just plug? Plug is a behavior that you can implement the behavior of plug. Yes. Right. Because if you want to write your own plug, it always has to have an init and a call function, right? Right. right. And those two functions should always return the same value, which is a plug con. Mm-hmm. So how do you enforce that they return a plug? Well, not a con, but just a plug. Um, that's done on the behavior level. Okay. Yeah. And the question that I have is like, are there any guarantees about that? Yeah, that's what we all want. Yeah. So how do we enforce that contract? Now I'm wondering. Um, yeah, so behaviors provide a way to define a set of functions that have to be implemented by a module. Um, and they ensure that a module implements all of the functions in that. But they don't guarantee that you're returning that the result, right? But that's where type specs are useful. Yeah, so now we're falling back on type specs, which I think gets into what Jose was saying at his keynote about what's next for him. And it's like getting into static analysis and how can we... Uh, how can we get some of these guarantees? Yeah. Yeah, right. Because that's a place, again, like where it would be nice to have it. Definitely. Sure would. It sure would. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to... I I can't remember the last time I've really used a behavior, to be honest, other than like implementing someone else's one. Yeah, I never use behaviors. Yeah. One of those things that like... I do it in the, the example that Dev, Desmond gave is about um, dealing with... Like, let's say you have an interface like, let's say you have a module that um, implements an API wrapper, right? So let's say you're implementing a GitHub API. What I would typically do in those situations is have a behavior at the top level that says, I'm going to implement these, this set of functions and they return this result, typically like an okay or an error tag tuple. Um, and then I would have my mock version of that that would implement that behavior and therefore has to implement those functions. And I'd have my live version of that that would be actually hitting the API endpoints on via an HTTP call. Um, and again, they would be implementing that behavior. But I'm guaranteeing using that that they both have those sets of functions, right? Mm-hmm. So now when I, when I tell it to, in this case, I, I basically def delegate the, I delegate the calls to, um, one of those modules be it the mock one or the live one based on some kind of configuration at runtime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a really useful pattern. Yeah. It's really helpful. Yeah. Um, But I never, I don't really use like polymorphism of types Mm. in Elixir. That's just not how I think about my code or structure. Yeah. I I guess I, yeah, I know. Right. Because you basically get the same thing if you're just implementing a function with multiple function heads as well. Right. Yeah, and I would rather have it in the module of, let's say I had a generate report that Mm. switched based on what kind of type I was giving it. I would rather have that in my generate where I could see, oh, well, now I'm doing generate for this versus generate for that, as opposed to the other way around where the two generate functions are in separate modules. Yeah, yeah. So basically all protocols do is then get compiled. like Into the one. Yeah, it's effectively the same thing, right? Like, Sweet. Yeah, so basically... Your mileage may vary on protocols, but at least we have accurately defined those two different things between 
behaviors and protocols here. Your mileage may vary, but it'll be low mileage either way. <laughs> I so I I actually use protocols a lot, but I when I really do want to separate the code out and have very distinct implementations in different places, mm-hmm. and that's when it's been useful for me. So less about what you're talking about there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. there we go. Cool. So what what's what what are you going to do about this code base? So you said there's some places where you need to do some improvement. Like, what's your plan? Uh, take it slow. <laughs> I mean, I've been a consultant for five years before this. You know, I've seen I've I've been on new code bases a lot. Sorry, I've been new on code bases uh, dozens of times in my career, and the first rule is always like, don't do anything too hastily mm-hmm. because you don't understand how it works. You don't understand how it fits together. Uh, if you walk in with, oh, I don't understand this. This looks weird. I'm just going to like whip all this up and change everything. Uh, you're going to screw something up. You're going to break something. Even if your tests are good, like you're, you're going to get midway through some refactor and you're going to pull on the string and then suddenly everything's going to fall to pieces. You're not going to remember where you started. So it's really just um, take it bit by bit. Um, mm-hmm. Start to pull out uh, long logic chains into private functions, um, swap out if statements for case statements, um, slowly add type specs. Um, yeah, just like don't try to do it all at once. It would be, I wish you could like share some of this code and then show the refactor journey because uh-huh. it would be one of those really interesting case studies, right? Where it's like going from somewhat non-idiomatic elixir into something a lot more idiomatic. You know, I had a plan for a while about building a service that was like collaborative code refactoring. Nice. So you can see or or start off with a chunk of code that's like, you know, how can I make this better? And then people would submit refactors. Um, Just, oh, well, think about doing it this way and that way. And um, I actually f- first wrote this years and years ago and then circled up to it over the summer, but never really went anywhere. I still think there's something interesting about, mm-hmm. okay, here's original version of code. Here are a couple different ways of re-implementing it. Um, but for some reason, the idea never took root. If that's interesting to anyone listening, please reach out to me because I'd love to talk more about it, mm-hmm. even though I have a job now. <laughs> but um, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I think it would be really helpful to see, like, starting, ending... And again, just what are examples of idiomatic code? I think we all have this problem when we're learning something new is how do we learn it the right way? And I think people want to learn to do Elixir the right way. They just don't have a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we said earlier, there's a style guide, but it's kind of whatever. And people always have questions for where should my code go? How um, do I organize my modules? Um, Okay, if I can't use an if statement in typical control flow operators, what does it really look like? And part of the problem is that a lot of this production code is private. Mm-hmm. You know, companies are loath to make a lot of the stuff public, and we're kind of stuck with that. Um, and there also, are some good open source projects, though, right? The, yeah. Like, and we're, like, I, mean, I also think the Elixir code base itself, like Elixir Lang, like, standard library is a really good place to go. And, you know, like, I haven't spent spelunk. a lot of time in there. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Phoenix code base, mm-hmm. and that's pretty well written. Yeah. Um, but not... Not an elixir. So here's a question though. If, so a lot of this code sounds like it's like implement this set of business logic rules and you're done. Yes. So does maintainability matter? Should you be writing code that's, 
I mean, obviously, you should be writing maintainable code, right? It goes without saying. But if this stuff works, like, do you do you feel like you have to refactor it? Yes, I do. Um, I think it's fine to get to where we are now with that sort of code because the goal is to figure out if you have a product of value. Because mm-hmm. if the product isn't valuable or you're late to market, then it doesn't matter how good the code is. You know, I think that's a reasonable trade-off. Um, however, at some point, the value proposition shifts to, okay, people have to maintain this and they have to extend it. And you don't want to end up in a situation where there is a huge chunk of core functionality that everyone is afraid to touch and no one understands. Like that's a huge business risk. Um, you know, maybe all that domain knowledge lives in one person's head and then you'll leave the company. Uh, or maybe a new feature comes in that requires you to fiddle with it. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a big risk. I mean, again, with the caveat of like, don't go in and try to change everything at once, you know, be measured in the changes that you make, but you want to be in a place where someone can look at code a few months later and understand it. Cause that someone's probably going to be you <laughs> and you're going to look at this and be like, what was I thinking? Like, yeah. What's going on here? Especially when it's like complex tax related rules and student mm-hmm. loan rules and all those kinds of mm-hmm. things. It must be a, I can't even, I, there's no way you can keep all that in your head, right? The entire set of the rule set. So no. coming back to it is going to be interesting. Yeah. Unless the code is well factored. Yeah. So I do think it's important to, to do that sort of thing. And, you know, now's a good time to do it. The code base isn't super large. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you don't start tackling it now, yeah, it's when? just going to keep growing like student loans. <laughs> so you got to pay down that debt. What about if I pay it off, Bobby? Uh, No, you're not Bobby. Wow. (laughs) What about if I cancelled the student loan debt? What do you mean cancelled it? I'm going to Bernie that shit, you know? Are you talking like, what does the business landscape of this look like? Is that where we're going with this? Yeah. Or? Yeah, I don't know. I was just throwing an idea out there. In my head, there was a funny joke there, but I don't think I quite got to the end. Okay, well, since you asked, um, (laughs) the fact is that... 40% 40% of the government's assets are in student loans. Whoa. So, yeah, it's an insane number. So you're basically saying that cancelling it is not a viable strategy? It's, it's not on the table. And yeah. I, I don't want to get too into the into the politics on, on this technical podcast, this very serious technical podcast. Um, I don't see that as a realistic option. And let's say you had an option where we're just going to forgive $400 billion of student loan debt. Just wipe it away. Um, okay, sure. We're adding a hundred billion every year. So like, what are you going to do in five years? Mm. And you're back where you started. So that doesn't address the systemic problem of tuition costs are rising and, um, there isn't a good solution for paying these things off. Yeah. So that structural problem is not going away. And I don't see the situation getting any simpler because nothing in life gets simpler. Things have never gotten simpler. Right. So, you know, I'm not worried about it. It's a good answer. Thank you. Yeah. I myself am feeling the burn, so... Hey, I mean, you know, <laughs> great. <laughs> Maybe not this particular policy. I don't know. I also think that, like, colleges are kind of... Oh, I think colleges are kind of pyramid schemes in general. Um, interesting. I mean, we work in one of the only professions where you can, like, teach yourself and get a good job. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you didn't go to college. But there's like, there are a ton of courses now where people are like, I couldn't get a job in that thing other than teaching other people the thing that I just learned. 
That seems really backwards. Wait, that's a thing? Yeah, there's like some fields where it's like, I mean, please don't yell at me for saying this, everyone, but there are some fields like where you go and study and there aren't enough jobs for that field and it's very hard to switch your career or it might be a very esoteric subject and therefore your only path forward is to go back into academia and teach other people that. Well, I think it's another question of, does it make sense to study something with no commercial viability? And I like the idea of learning for learning's sake. Like, yeah, sweet. I love learning stuff. Um, and I don't think we should stop people from doing that. The question of, is that a wise personal economic move? If you're going to go into debt to learn a thing... Yeah, and you're going to spend the rest of your life paying down. I don't know. That's a personal choice. But also, like, I also like. I think the art of going to college is also a useful thing in its own way, right? You learn some good skills there. I'm not saying that everyone has to, as well. By the way, I I really like the fact, and I really value the fact that in our field that that doesn't have to be a path in it. And some of the best engineers I've met didn't come from those backgrounds whatsoever. Didn't do CS. Didn't did something in college or maybe didn't go to college and then did something else later. And I, I think, mean, yeah. I don't have a computer science degree. My degree is um, in economics. Unbelievable. <laughs> Although, I mean, it was kind of helpful because it did teach me, like, economics 101 and 102 are super dull. But <laughs> when you get into things like trade theory and um, game theory, that's just like, how do people behave? Yeah. And that's really interesting. I guess it served it's you well for your new role of calculating costs of loans. Maybe. My first job out of college was in cash management. Right. So that was, that's proving helpful. But, uh, I mean, I did learn just like how to view the world, um, through some of those lens of economics. Side note about economics. For decades, the, um, profession, w- uh, hinged upon the theory that people are rational actors. Which, like, any five-minute conversation with an actual human being will prove to be totally worthless. And yet the field just existed forever. And in fact, someone won the Nobel Prize, like, ten years ago for the novel theory that people are not rational. And everyone was like, oh, my God, this is groundbreaking. This is nuts. And it's like, has everyone here lost their minds? (laughs) Or what? What? Anyway, so the point is that you can study a dismal science like I did. (laughs) <laughs> still uh, have a great career in computers. And make it out as a CTO at a loan payment. Yeah, you never know where life is going to take you. It's cool. Well, folks, I think we should wrap up this extra special episode of Elixir Talk where Chris and Desmond sat and watched each other. So it's been another exciting and very unique episode of Elixir Talk. I can't imagine the next time where we're going to get to do this in person. Who knows? I'll be back in New York at some point. Oh, that's good. So maybe we'll do more of these. So um, as always, if you have thoughts about this episode or you just want to rate it and tell all your friends, that would be great. Great. So please give us a rating wherever you're getting this podcast today and write us a review. If you have any questions, you can get in touch with us at Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk, or you can even open up a GitHub issue on our trusty old GitHub issues page, which is github.com forward slash Elixir Talk forward slash Elixir Talk. So as always, folks, that's the end of the show and keep Elixir in.